You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. When I went back, you told the Anyway, that was just me making fun of the fact that I stumbled on my opening sentence to the podcast. But I'm going to try again. Take two. Hi. When I was watching the Barack Obama election in 2008, I was watching MSNBC, really for the first time. I had never really turned to that station much. And I saw these people that were so sharp of mind and, and uh, liberal but intellectual and sort of smart about politics. And I didn't feel like at all I was being sold anything, like I do now, by the way. When you watch MSNBC now, to me, first of all, half the, present, half the people on there are, are just nowhere near the quality that they were in 2008 at all. Uh, the brain power and the, just the star power, the everything power is just depleted on that station. But also, um, I think they've, they've tried to find a niche of a product and sell it to us all the time. And I don't like that. But back in 2008, uh, with people like Keith Oberman, Rachel Maddow in a non- uh, hotshot role, like as a sidekick kind of person, was a blo- she blew you away. That's why she became a hotshot. Um, and uh, um, Chris Matthews, hardball, you know, he was great. Uh, he had not yet kind of sort of gone over the edge, gotten a little bit out of out of his whack, which he did when uh, when the people started supporting Bernie Sanders. He was very anti-Bernie. And he was very pro-Hillary. And uh, so you could you could say that people like Chris Matthews kind of destroyed this country in the end because the people that were really democratically in support of Hillary really fucked things up because everyone knew that she was a bad candidate. Everyone knew that there was something about her personality that no one was going to like, and it wasn't that she was a woman at all. It was just her personality. And... Everyone knew that she was villainized and a supreme target of the Republicans from the get-go, and you just didn't want to go with that after the first black president. You know, after eight years, after enraging so many people in this country that are closeted racists with the first black president for eight years, you don't want to go with the first woman president if that first woman president is Hillary Clinton. It was just not a smart move politically. But whenever she started winning all the primaries, I, I was totally on board because you've got to go with the Democratic candidate. But, I mean, the people that were bashing Bernie and taking Bernie down in support of her uh, in the, those primaries, they were missing the boat. As we found out, the country wanted extremists at that point. They were tired of the moderate Democrat in Barack Obama. They were, they were tired of moderation in general. They, you know, the, the right wanted extreme. And they went extreme with Donald Trump. And the left could have won and would have beaten Trump, I believe, if they had gone with the extreme of Bernie Sanders. And then the Trump nightmare would have never happened. And I honestly believe that would have silenced a lot of the racists and lunatics out there. And the country would be a much different country today. I think that once you let, once you open up Pandora's box, you can't, you can't get the, uh, you can't get it back in the box, uh, whatever the hell it is that gets out. <laughs> so I think um, that's where we're at. We're in a country now. Like once those shootings all started, the mass shootings, they just keep increasing. And they're just never going to stop now because everybody looks and sees and says, oh, there's an idea, right? The crazy people, not everybody, the crazy people look and say, oh, yeah, I'll take mom's gun, dad's gun, I'll get my own gun, whatever. Guns, tons of them, stockpile them whatever and go on a rampage you know it just becomes a thing so really it's like the catholic church taught us years ago out of sight out of mind uh you know you don't want a sinful thought in your head because it doesn't take that long before the thought becomes action thought becomes words becomes deeds right and then that 
that is the fear of, of sin, of bad actions. Something I learned about myself growing up over the years, um, and I'm continuing to grow at 56, we're always growing, is with respect to my weaknesses. Uh, the more I, if I indulge it even once, the more inclined I am to indulge it another time and another time. And, and it snowballs. Uh, it's true with eating too much. It's true with anger. I mean, restricting yourself and, and engaging in self-discipline, it's like an alcoholic falling off the wagon. You know, you, you uh, go into rehab, you're dry and you're not drinking. Well, you know that you're an alcoholic every day. And if you ever have a drink, you could become an alcoholic. You, you're still an alcoholic, even though you're not drinking. And if you have one drink, that could be it. So you're, you're not allowed to casually dabble because it will snowball. And so I've learned that about myself, not about the drinking. I'm not an alcoholic, but I mean, about other things in my life that are my weaknesses, uh, like food <laughs> and, um, and dieting. Uh, when I get into it and lock in and I'm very disciplined, I can go on a roll. And it, that snowballs as well. And so the concept of let's not let the cat out of the bag Let's not uh, let the jack out of spring out of the jack in the box because you can't push it back in and you can't get the cat back in the bag. And once you reveal a weakness in humanity, it's going to thrive and sin is best left uh, smothered. Now, I agree that some things aren't sins that we've smothered over the years, like sexual desires and things that are natural and that we've uh, or making homosexuals feel that expressing their sexual preference was wrong and a sin. There have been things in our culture where we were just ignorant. We were stupid and we didn't know that they were legitimate parts of humanity and expressing them and being them was not, you know, acting on temptation and therefore making it more likely that this bad thing would grow. No, it was just acting on human uh, reality and letting it grow would be okay. Um, but that's obviously not the case with shooting and that's not the case with extremist politicians, especially fascist extremists. And we've seen now with the proposed imminent Supreme Court decision striking down Roe versus Wade that that's what happens when you let the cat out of the bag when it comes to extremist politicians like Donald Trump. And so what we should have done back in 2016 is all jumped on board with the extremist Bernie Sanders on the left to silence the extremists on the right. Because, friends, don't listen to any moderate or right-wing politician who who pretends that they're uh, – is an equality between the extremists on the left and the extremists on the right. There isn't. Uh, the worst that would happen with the extremists on the left is that white males would be snuffed out. And I'm a white male, and older white males, by the way. So I'm the most threatened by allowing the extreme left to get everything at once, me. Also, rich people uh, are threatened by it, sure. I'm not rich, but... <laughs> um, and I'm not afraid of the extremists on the left. I don't agree with them on a lot of things. I don't. And I, I do have more moderate beliefs. But I would never be so delusional as to think that there is an equivalence between the, the extreme left and the extreme right. Because the extreme left still, in the end, other than when they start canceling people and taking down old men and taking down white men all the time and being misandrous completely and all that kind of crap and being racist against white people, pro-black, and things like that. They do get extreme in ways that are offensive. But for the most part, really still all they want is equality. Really still all they want is opportunity for everyone. Everyone, you know, uh, all genders, all races, all sexual preferences. That They want it for everyone. Where the extreme right, they truly do want a certain set of principles enforced on everyone. And that's what striking down Roe versus Wade is. It is not, allowing Roe versus Wade is not forcing a certain set of principles on everyone. It is allowing for freedom. It is allowing for 
opportunity and choice. As we always said as Democrats, it is the women's right to choose. It is not pro-abortion. It is not trying to convince people to kill an unborn child. It is not trying to persuade people to have abortions. It is simply to allow for a person to have a choice with what to do with their own body. Makes sense. Seems logical to a vast majority of the country, but not to our Supreme Court now because we allowed an extremist right-wing president to get into office. And he put in Supreme Court justices who were predisposed to do this. And all along, this is the number one thing uh, many of the supporters of Trump wanted. The, 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 the two things, they put up with a lot of craziness and things that disgusted even them for two main reasons. One, to save the rich from taxation and, reg- and regulations and restrictions. And two, to get Roe v. Wade taken down. That, those are the two big reasons. And, and just in general, to get a conservative Supreme Court. Uh, for other issues, too. They want the Constitution to restrict our rights more. And they want less regulation uh, on rich people. Uh, so for those two main reasons, they backed a lunatic and an extremist and a liar and a scumbag. Well, that tells you all you need to know about the right wing. Okay. That's why there's a false equivalence when you talk about extreme left and extreme right. And people like Bill Maher need to chill it with their trying to attempt to act like the left is so awful for all the things that the left has done wrong, like the cancel culture that's come out of it, which is over the top now. Um, at the end of the day, they're not trying to, uh, they're not going to back a sociopath and a liar to get their things done. Okay. At the end of the day, they still appreciate a good person more than the other side. The other side throws all morality out the door for the sake of morality, for the sake of abortion. It's a moral issue. Well, it doesn't matter. It ends justifies the means. No, it doesn't. It never did. Everyone knows the ends never justify the means and that you must be careful how you get to your end goal and you must be careful the tactics you used, you use and the methods you use and you must stay within a, the parameters that are acceptable. And in a democracy, that includes majority rules. It should, anyway. Um, in a republic, let's say. It should include majority rules. But when I was watching MSNBC back in 2008, I saw these brilliant minds. And when Barack Obama was winning, that was cutting edge. And that was Chris Matthews then wasn't making the mistake of backing Hillary Clinton over Bernie which would hurt this country, perhaps irreparably. He was doing something that was helping the country in a very lasting way, which was supporting the brilliance of Barack Obama and allowing for a black man to become president. And yes, it caused, ruffled a lot of feathers and the pendulum swung extreme to the right and we should have battled it with Bernie. But I I do think it's going to swing back. I don't think that this country is destroyed over all of this Trump stuff. I just think it's permanently changed for the worse, but I don't think it's destroyed. And I think we can still also permanently alter it for the better at all times. But when I watched all of those people, I thought they were so intelligent and I wanted to move to DC and I wanted to be a part of that active, intelligent group of people trying to get something done in politics. And I just thought that's where I belonged in life. In so many areas, Even as a lawyer at law firms, I ran into people that just didn't get me. When I would speak and get into things, they would just get overwhelmed by my thoughts. Um, They would phase out. And I knew that I was making sense. And I felt they're treating me like I was an idiot or boring or confusing or, you know, this is a tactic that people use a lot when they're not really on your wavelength. And I don't mean to sound snobby here, but I'm going to have to for a minute. But when you're on a a wavelength that's above someone else's and you're speaking at a level they just can't handle because they're just not up to speed at that level, the level that is above them, um, the tactic they often use is that you're not making any sense. 
you're confusing. You're all over the place. This is the thing they tell you a lot. When really it's just that their mind can't keep up with yours. When really it's that the things you're saying are, are overloading their sensory perceptions. That they are not really, their sinews and their, you know, their uh, neurotransmitters in their brain just aren't snapping off as quickly as yours. And you're just kind of burning them out and making them feel like, it's kind of like you're driving the car too fast. Uh, their car only goes up to 70 and then the engine overheats. And you're trying to drive their car to 90 because you're in a Ferrari and they're in a Oldsmobile. So uh, what you end up feeling, though, if you're an empathetic person and you actually want to communicate with others, you're not looking to overwhelm people. You're not looking to show off. You're looking to have good productive conversation and you respect everybody and you even if you're intelligent don't look at yourself that way you just look at yourself as a person with ideas and you want to be heard but you also want to be uh, interacted with and you want to be accepted i mean you, you, you or disagreed with in a way that is actually interesting you you, you don't have to be agreed with but you want to be accepted as someone with valid thoughts and good ideas but also, if you are rejected or disagreed with, you want to be able to consider the alternative position as valid and legitimate. And that takes intellectual debate. That takes the person objecting or rejecting or disagreeing to have at least understood your idea. If you're talking to them and they don't understand your idea, how can they really validly disagree with it they can't and what you get a lot when you're dealing with people that aren't on your wavelength is you get a lot of rejection and disagreement that's invalid and you know that it is immediately because you understand that just they didn't hear you they didn't get what you were saying and they insult you a lot what you get from people a lot of the time when you're speaking on a wavelength that is outside of theirs is it just insults and they take you down and they poke at you they find your weakness and they attack it to set you off so that the the issue the, the conversation is no longer about the the subject at hand and it becomes about you. And it's a tactic that people have used on me all of my life. I remember this drummer in my first band used to do it all the time. He would come at me, create an argument with me so that the dispute over the band subject matter that we were having, whether it be times for practice, gigs we should have, or how to structure a song or whatever, although we didn't really argue much about that. I was pretty much given carte blanche in how to arrange our songs. But occasionally there'd be a disagreement about that. But mostly it was about, you know, practice schedules and how much we needed to get together and do that and where we should play and who we should open for or what what venues were appropriate for our band to play the drummer who was a smart guy but you know I, I always knew he resented me I was younger than him and I was at Carnegie Mellon a good, very good university and he never in any way shape or form gave a nod of respect to me for my educational prowess i was also the valedictorian in my high school he gave me no it was clear that he didn't want to talk about that and when i would talk and, and express opinions and thoughts in in the way that i do which i think is is trying to be reasonable and using my brain um he would come at me and i've you know it, it was just clever the way he would make a comment about me upset me because i had a hot temper uh, growing up a lot, not that hot, but pretty. I mean, I could be, I could be, it was a, it was something that was a weakness of mine. He knew that. And so he would poke at me and I would get angry. And then he goes, you always get so angry. It's something my dad does to me to this day. I'll be talking to him about something. He'll come at me, disagree in a harsh, negative way, upset me. And then the whole rest of the discussion will be about the fact that I got upset. I don't even get upset the way I used to anymore with him. It just, he makes it about me still. I don't even get up. I don't even like raise my voice. I don't even lose my cool. But it still becomes a discussion about me. Um, it's just something he's always enjoyed doing. He reminds me of my drummer regularly. <laughs> and I don't know why it is other than I think my father always resented the fact that I was smart too. I think he was proud of me. And he, he, he you know, you like to have an intelligent son. But I think it's also, you know, he's a man. He's a competitive man. 
And many times over the course of my life, I have felt him competing with me, you know, and felt him putting me in my place. And even at 85 years old, if I ever misstate a fact when I'm talking to him, he goes, that's not it at all. It's that. It's not that. It's this. And he's very, like, harsh about it. And he loves pointing out when I make a mistake because he's very competitive. And he wants to know that he knew something I didn't know and I'm wrong about something. And it's real important to him. I don't think that way. I'm not competitive like that at all. But I notice when someone else is. And it hurts my feelings because one thing I am is sensitive, overly so. One thing I am is uh, too concerned with what people think of me. And I've gotten much, much better at that over the years. But it's still part of who I am and I can't eliminate it. And what I've gotten much better at is allowing the hurt to be felt but not showing it and not reacting to it. And that's the key. The key thing in life is you can't change how you feel. You can't really eliminate anger or hurt or sorrow or happiness. But you can regulate how much of it you show to the people you're around and to who you show it to because it matters. You know, you don't want everyone to know when you're real happy or real sad or, or angry with something they've said or done. You need to understand the situation, the circumstances, and you know, regulate your response accordingly. So that's something I've learned and, and gotten much better at. I used to just be, hey, it's about being honest. It's about being open. When you feel it, show it. But you learn the hard way that other people go, aha, and they jump on you the moment you show your feelings. And then the whole conversation and everything gets turned on you and the feeling you showed rather than, it's kind of like dating. If you're if you're really attracted to a woman, you don't just want to keep telling her how gorgeous she is. You will lose her. She would, it's not interesting. It's about the chase. You have to kind of come at them. They know that you like them or you wouldn't be talking to them. You know, and it's a game of trying to get them to sort of almost chase you more and, and tell you better things about you uh, more than you do it back. Because the person is more inclined to chase whoever they feel maybe is getting away. But if, they're, if you're coming at them all the time and laying all this praise on them, then they know they got you in their pocket and then they're less inclined to be interested in you because they think you're always going to be there. And then they may start straying and find someone else who's more of a challenge. And, and so there's always this, this back and forth in the dating uh, interaction stage. Hopefully once you've actually engaged in a relationship with somebody, you're past all of that. Although I'm not sure that's true. I think a lot of people maintain long-term relationships where they're never quite past all of that. But be that as it may, the dating stage involves this kind of hiding your truth so that you can get the person you want. And that's kind of what it's like in all facets of life, really. You have to think of the situation and what you want and what you're hoping for. And you can't just be and express and share the truth about yourself because that might sound good and it might feel like the right thing to do if you're just talking about, man, what's right? What's true? What's real? Yes, that's the passionate idealist in us all, right? We want to just be who we are and have us, everyone love us. But the reality is people are all different and people are trying to compete you and beat, beat with you and, not, and, and most people aren't comfortable being who they are. So if you come out and are just you, they're going to come at you and attack you because they're jealous of your openness and honesty. And also, you're the one that's putting your cards on the table, so you're the target. And see, and that's it's, it's kind of like who's going to make themselves the target? Who's going to be and put themselves out there to become the target? And that's the point of this podcast. I finally got around to it 23 minutes in, which is to say when I was <laughs> – back to the start – when I was watching, okay, well, just back to my drummer and my band, my dad, they see your weakness, they come at you so that you can become the, to the, the topic as opposed to winning the argument or, you know, the intellectual subject matter gets thrown out the window and it becomes a personal dispute because they know that's your weakness, right? So you've made yourself the target. The key in life is succeeding getting something you, that you want, being around the people who understand you, but not making yourself a target. So when I was watching all these people on MSNBC, 
in 2008, I thought, boy, I'd love to be around people like that. They would understand me. They would get me. I wouldn't be at a different level for them. I wouldn't be, they wouldn't be, people wouldn't be coming at me personally so much to take me down in a competitive way because they would be just understanding me more. And I've, I experienced some of that at Carnegie Mellon when I was at Carnegie Mellon and some of that at law school at Pitt. And occasionally you'd meet a lawyer in private practice or here or there that was actually pretty sharp and, and you could talk. Um, one thing I also learned is the creative types. It's hard with them because I'm a very much a creative person, but a lot of the creative types just don't think on a, in a linear fashion. And so if you're a more logical um, uh, person and you, and you do kind of reason things as well as being creative – a lot of times you intimidate and blow the creative types away too, so they don't really like you that much either. So it's really hard to find uh, people that are creative and open-minded and liberal-oriented, like art- like artists generally are, but at the same time, people who are rational and do appreciate intelligent conversation. And that's what I was seeing on MSNBC. I don't know how creative those people were artistic, but I was seeing open-minded, liberal-minded people that were also very sharp. And I was very excited by it. And I thought I should move to DC at that point. You know, I was what? I was 42 years old and I thought, boy, would I just feel so much more alive if I was living in in New York City or DC with 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 the heavy hitters, with the people that are at the upper echelon of thought process who are who are just you know, went to the good schools and come out into the real world and they're confident in, in their thoughts and their opinions and they're just putting it out there and they're and, and nobody's attacking them because everybody's like that. And so you're in with the people you belong with and you're having, you know, vibrant, relevant conversation about important topics with people that are on your wavelength and you're on their wavelength. And I just thought, boy, what a dream come true to have all of that. That would just be so wonderful. But of course I didn't do that. And I stayed in Pittsburgh and I stayed in my federal government job and I stayed around people that most of which were not my, uh, on my wavelength. And I, and I don't mind that. I, I mean, you have to humble yourself and you have to maintain your, your control and your cool. And you have to get used to being, you know, attacked uh, because people don't like the fact that you're blowing their brain open or you're, um, they think you think you're the smartest person in the room and they come at you with all of these things because you're just simply trying to be who you are, but who you are is just a little bit overwhelming for them, right? And I know a lot of women, by the way, as, a, as an aside here, who have said this, intelligent women sometimes have problems with men, they say, because of that, that some men just really want a woman to be more passive, easygoing, simple. And if you come out and you're too strong, it becomes this thing where they think you're masculine. But it's not that. It's also that they think that you're overwhelming them and smarter than them and it's just they're used to being the dominant guy they want to be on top and if the woman's making them feel uh that you know they're the inferior then they're not attracted to that and that's not where they're comfortable in a in a sexual predatory type of sense in a relationship type of sense so so these women have trouble getting these guys they want because but but you know what those women they always seem to want these guys that are you know Cro-Magnum men, for lack of a better term. You know, the guys that are built good and look good who aren't that smart. They always seem to want these guys where the brain is, like, optional, but the body and the brawn is hell of a nice thing. You know, it's like they, they want that Adonis-type man. And, and then they wonder why they're smart and the guy's not interested. Well, you're, you're blowing his brain away, and he doesn't like that. He wants to be able to pin his girl on the mat. <laughs> he doesn't want her... And she wants the, the funny thing is these women they want pinned on the mat they want the guy to take them, but but if you you know if you're intimidating them overall with your presence because they're frankly dumb, they're not going to want to take you you know they're gonna they're gonna think that you should be pinning them to the mat and that's going to be something that probably turns most of those guys off. So, but one thing I realized recently in watching the Stairway movie on HBO or no yeah it's HBO Max. Story of a a wealthy novelist married to a wealthy financial person of some kind, woman, and she dies, loss of blood, head head trauma, falling down the stairs, or murdered. You know, 
That's the question, and that's what the movie's about. When you watch that movie, you see the depiction of, you know, a well-to-do family living in Durham, North Carolina, big big home pool, you know, connections. Uh, everybody's a member on a board. Everybody's, uh, you know, uh, connected to other business people and celebrity people and... I, I, and you know you're you're on stage your life is an open book and that's why that murder true crime story became such a hit on Netflix when it came out in 2004 and why they're making a movie about it all these years later it's cuz people love uh to talk about the rich and famous and the people that are out there and in watching that movie you're you're probably like what's what's Ray talking about here where is he going now I'm going to make a point here. There's there's a there's a rhyme to my reason. Uh, there's a method to my madness. The point I'm making is the concept of fitting in and being on the wavelength with people, so that you're not made a target, also has to be balanced against the idea that if you're among those people and you become a mover and a shaker, you're going to be a target. You see, and that's what I kind of, why I stayed in Pittsburgh and why I didn't go for the big time when I was younger. And it just sort of hit me. You know, when I watched MSNBC in 2008, I thought that's where I belong. Why did I stay in Pittsburgh? Why did I go small time? Why am I working for the federal government, you know, hidden away? Why am I not a mover and a shaker? Why am I not a big time big shot? I had all the, I had all the skills, you know. I had all, and I, and I could have made more opportunities for myself. I didn't really have the connections, and I wasn't really living in an area or, or even among people. But there's there are there are opportunities in Pittsburgh. There are opportunities in any city. I'm not living in, you know, Idaho somewhere in a in a, in a hidden away or something. I'm not living in North Dakota. I'm, I'm living. Outside the city of Pittsburgh, it's it's a major city in the United States, and even though it's a smaller city by and large than than some, some of the huge ones, it's a major city, and the metropolitan area is as big as New York if you include, which they should, but they don't when they when they talk talk about the size of Pittsburgh. There are a lot of outlying areas that if you included them in Pittsburgh, we'd be a big city. But they include all kinds of metropolitan areas in New York when they talk about New York. All the five boroughs are included which is kind of like ridiculous when you think about it. But that's why New York's such a big city. If it was really just Manhattan and even Manhattan and Brooklyn, it wouldn't be that big of a city, you know. But when you include all the boroughs, then it is. <clears throat> but anyway, Pittsburgh has opportunities. I could have done things politically and could have and, – and, you know, people in my family have. My sister has. My father uh, has over the years with his girlfriend who just recently passed away, sadly. Um, but and and my sister's ex husband, who's I think they're engaged again. Yeah, they are. Uh, they still he 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 runs political campaigns. So you can stay connected, get out there, be a you know if not a mover and a shaker yourself, at least be connected with movers and shakers, even if you're not wealthy, uh, even if you're just middle class. There are things to do here that I could have done, but I didn't do them here. Not only did I not go to D.C., did I not go to New York, I didn't do them here. And I thought, well, why? And I realized in watching The Staircase, why? And it's because when you look at those people, every move is, is made in a glass house. Every decision you make, when you put yourself out there, even in a group that is like you, you may not be the target from people inside that group because they may get you. So there may not be the drummer coming at you anymore or your dad or anybody who, for whatever reason, has decided to rather than engage with you, target you. It may not be that, but it is a there is an there is the out, people outside that group that are targeting you. You are, and people inside, if you make a mistake. I mean, people inside might be your friends and by your side, but then if you make a mistake, look what they do to you. Case in point, Chris Matthews, MSNBC, 
Hot shot, big shot, you know, hardball, brilliant. 2008, by 2016, he's back in Hillary. She loses. He weakens his position by that disaster. But moreover, he gets, you know, a little fresh with women or makes some comments and makes them uncomfortable. Me Too generation comes along. Boom, he's out. He's out. And that's what happens that's just a sort of a that's a different example with the cancel culture of today. But even if you're part of the insider group, if you make a mistake, everyone sees it. It could be a slight mistake. It could be a minor mistake. But any transgression of any kind is under the microscope. Um, and, and you'll be thrown out of the Senate or Congress or your board that you're on or and everyone will know about it. It'll be in the papers and uh, it'll be on the news. If you are anybody that has gotten notoriety, you're going to be targeted. Even if you're a judge, even if you're just a common police judge and you're on a bench, if, you know, people are not going to like you because you're judging against them, right? You're going to be judging for some people, but against others. You could get death threats. You could get stabbed as one judge was here some years back. Coming to your car at night, you could. I know a judge that uh, an ALJ, an administrative law judge that used to, he retired recently, work with me that I worked with. When he would come into and go out of the office, he would wear a baseball cap and like a, a sort of a raggedy jacket. And I saw him once and he explained to me the reason he does it. He was literally concerned with being targeted coming out the door by claimants that he might have ruled against that might be incensed at him. So he was basically coming into and out of work in disguise, looking like just a regular guy. He didn't want to wear a suit. He didn't want to, you know, wear a fancy, a nice raincoat. He didn't want to look like a business guy. And he didn't want his face fully shown. He wanted a hat on, kind of pulled down with a big brim because he was trying to hide. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, he makes a good point. All it takes is one crazy person. You know, um, I remember when I went to training for my job, there were many stories about knives and weapons that they confiscated. We have metal detectors, not only at the federal building, but there's one up in the hearing office as well that people have to go through because people can sneak them in and have over the years uh, to, to potentially attack the judge in a small little hearing room if they don't like what how it's going down. So... Um, And you have to remember half these people, too, are seeking disability where I work based on mental impairments as well. So we, you know, we have people that are uh, potentially, you know, have some some serious mental issues. And it could be that you're ruling for them, but they might somehow not like something you're saying. Who knows? But the point is, when I watch the stair, the stairwell or staircase or whatever it is with Colin Firth and uh I saw the media attention. This wasn't Gone Girl. This wasn't a fictional story. This was real life. And I saw the the people at the dinner parties, the pool party at their house, and all the interaction. And this guy was a closeted gay. And he was living a secret secret, a second life of sex that his wife wasn't aware of, you know, with, with, with other people that were sexual. And, the, and this whole... Um, Story became explosive for that reason, too. And I thought, boy, how awful. When you're famous, uh, how, how, how challenging it would be, your sex life, your romantic life. Everybody would be chasing you around with cameras looking at it. But even if you weren't that famous, you know, you'd have to be very careful because one misstep and it would be in the papers. Example of that here in Pittsburgh, there was a local a sports reporter named Guy Junker. He just retired about a week ago. I think he's 66 now. About 30 years ago, when he was in his 30s, he was arrested for propositioning a an undercover cop downtown uh, for a blowjob. <laughs> and um, it was a sting operation. And he was arrested for that. And, uh, yeah, it sticks with you. And there's another local sports guy who was picked up on a couple DUIs. And there was another local newscaster who was famous for 
broadcasting drunk. And Myron Cope, the sports reporter, used to drink up in the booth when he called Steelers games and on and on. So the point is, these stories get out and lies get out too and gossip starts that isn't even true. And so what I realize is, if you sure, if you want to be a type A personality, a go-getter, you're putting, you're making yourself a target. And you may have escaped being the target of the people that aren't on your wavelength when you go to the heavy hitter world. And you may have escaped the attacks that come upon you for your personality to avoid the subject matter because they can't handle the debate with you because it's kind of out of their league. You may have escaped that, but you come into a whole new kind of personal attack. You come into a whole new kind of worry about being uh, um, slighted or, or come at for something that you didn't even think about because now you matter and you're important and you make changes and things in the world that, that directly affect other people and they don't like everything you're doing and you can't please everybody and they're aware of you and they're aware of what you're doing and you're going to hear about it. And so when you go to that heavy hitter place, I think you actually become more of a target. And so if you're the type of person who's sensitive to the reactions of others, and if you have weaknesses, they're going to be doubly exploited in the heavy hitter world. And the other thing that made me hold back from becoming a heavy hitter in my life is the concept of um, every day being on you have to be on if you think about it there are certain professions and ways to live in this world where you can control your agenda day to day there's certain jobs where you set the pace uh it's hard it's hard to find a way to make money and make a living and yet you control each day and set the pace most people would say we well, have to own your own business to do that and once you own a business, if it takes off, you've got to have employees. And all of a sudden, you're not setting the pace. The pace is setting you. The day is scheduled for you. Once you become a business owner that, that's successful, you wait and see how much you're not setting the pace. You have to be on all the time, working all the time. You have to be checking in on others. It's really hard. The stress is constant. So I'm not really, But what about a job where you're not a business owner, but you're a creator of some kind? And you might call yourself a business owner, but you're a creator and you do set the agenda. And you're a, maybe a sole practitioner, a solo business, you know, or maybe you have one partner. Uh, or Because even a restaurant, right, if you're owning it, it's setting the pace. You have to be open certain hours. You have to have employees on. You have to take care of things. You have to get the food in. It's a constant grind. So even something that would seem, oh, fun or simple like that, no, no, that – You've got to be on every day to run the, that restaurant, you know. So you better, you better be the type of person that when you wake up in the morning, you're ready to get it the day. You better be the type of person that might very well go to the gym in the morning or roll out of bed onto the floor and start doing push-ups, um, you know, or, or get on your running clothes and go out for that morning run. You know, when you saw the movie like Wall Street, right, that's what they were doing in that movie, that, the movers and shakers. Well, that wasn't a lie. That's not just a Hollywood depiction. The people that are in D.C. and New York, those big shots I thought I wanted to be around, they get up every day going at the world. And they want to take a bite out of the world. They look at it as the world is their apple. The world is their oyster. <laughs> and, they, and they want to succeed every day. It's a challenge and they want to do something and they want to succeed and they want to achieve something. And... Their ego's on the line every day, and that matters to them. Their ego's important, and they're competitive. They want to win. They want to beat the next guy. They want to get that next dollar. They're into making money. They want to get that dollar. They want to get that money. So every day, they're driven. They, a lot of these people, they'll put on their mirror, right, phrases. They'll tape it up to read. They go to self-help seminars and phrases that are positive speak, you know. It's all about the attitude. It starts with you and your attitude and all this thing. And they psych themselves up every morning and they and they eat balanced meals and they, you know, they they the newest trends, they'll drink the liquid kale, they'll do blend drinks, they'll they'll go on a bike ride. I mean, 
they look at life as this constant uh, aggressive challenge. And you could say, yes, that's wonderful. What's wrong with that? Well, that's fine if that's who you are. That was never who I was. So my point is I'm realizing not only did I not go to the big time because I would have made myself a target, but also if you're going to go into that world, you better be ready to make every day a grind and to have pressure on you every day. I don't know. These guys don't even get vacations. If you are in a position of real power where you actually make a big difference in the world and people know you by name and know who you are, every day you wake up, people want to know who you are. You matter, and that's exciting. You matter to people, and that makes you feel good about yourself. But it also means when do you get a break? When do you get time off alone? When do you get to just be by yourself? Or when do you get to say, fuck it, I don't feel like doing anything today. I'm going to play hooky. When do you really get that peace of mind and control? You think when you achieve and become successful, power will come with that. Well, it's true to some degree. But what about the power over your own life? What about the power to control the agenda to your days? What about the power to say no mas when you are overloaded and you need to chill? You lose that. You lose that. There's no way these movers and shakers and heavy hitters have that. They are often overwhelmed. The reason most of them get therapists and are on drugs of different kinds and the, most, and the reason they work out is that time jogging in the morning or at the gym is like their only time away where they get peace of mind. You know, it's, it's their one moment where they, where they, the reason they do yoga is that's their escape from the stress that they then have to turn around and get right back out into. Most of these people you find out don't sleep very well. They get maybe four hours of sleep at night because how could you sleep if you're constantly thinking about the agenda that you have the next day all the time? I know in my current job, which is really very laid back and very alone, I get stressed out. I still have trouble sleeping during the work week because I'm thinking about the thing I have to do tomorrow and how to schedule my day. But main, the main stress for me is how to organize my schedule so that I have control over it. That's what I want in my work life. I don't like being controlled. I like having the power as much as possible over each day. And that's really important to me. And I stress over it because you, there's a struggle always between your supervisors and the people above you. And they want to control you. And they want to jerk you around. And they want to prove that you answer to them. And they want to make you jump for them. And they want you to say how high. And you want to say, hey, um, I'm a free agent. I'll do that when I get to it. Uh, you know, yes, I guess I'll do this for you. You want to have options. So there's a struggle of how to handle your work in a way where you feel, even if you're deluding yourself, you can at least feel like you're in control and you can at least feel like they didn't take all the power from you. That's important to me. See, that's very, and so, so much so that I stress over it, even in my, uh, you know, inconsequential job when you look at it in the subject matter I'm talking about here. So how the hell would I have lasted in a world where, <laughs> in a life where each day I totally had no power, even though I'm a powerful person, I have no power because the things I have to do have to get done each day. And if they don't get done, things fall apart. That's not having power. That's being powerless, really. That's being kind of stuck in a world that's running you. And you might have the call and the say, and you might have the in-life power, and you might have the money, and you might have power that comes from the money, and you may get women because they like rich guys, and you may be able to buy the women. But guess what? At the end of the day, Elon Musk was still divorced three times, twice to the same woman, and his current girlfriend is no longer his girlfriend, Grimes. They finished. And he keeps making babies. I think he has seven children now or something, you know. Uh, and his last one was a surrogate baby, which is really strange. And you realize this guy has issues. This guy has desire to plant his seed in a woman. This guy has some romantic problems. For all of his success in his business ventures, he somehow feels inadequate or is trying to accomplish something with his semen <laughs> that is, is confusing, really. You're like, what, dude, what, what, what is enough for you? So you realize there is no peace of mind with wealth or power because you always feel like you don't really have control. I don't care how much you own a business. I don't care how much money you have. 
The world control, it ends up controlling you. When you matter to people, Jesus felt this way. Story of Jesus. It's in the Gospels where he just needed to sneak away and go off alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and he needed to, he, he would go to a certain place to be alone and pray and to speak to God. He would have to escape the crowds. He was healing everybody. They wanted him. They were coming after him. Other people were looking to take him down, target him, the religious leaders. They didn't like his blasphemy, his, some of the way he was breaking the rules. You know, so there was, he had, he mattered so much while he was on this earth that it was very difficult for him to find alone time and to control his own agenda. And at the end of the day, he didn't control his agenda. God controlled it. And he was crucified and he knew that and he had to accept it. The life happened to him. He took on the burden and did what he had to do. But even Jesus, was he was so important and such a heavy hitter, he did not control his life. God controlled his life. And frankly, he let the people control his life. The earthlings who killed him and, and, who, and who, you know, came at him and asked for healings. And, you know, in the end, his agenda was controlled by God and the people. And that's Jesus Christ. You are not Jesus Christ. I am certainly not Jesus Christ. So what I realized in watching the staircase, stairwell, stairwood, whatever it's called, the movie on HBO, it, it made me flash back to 2008 and MSNBC. And I realized this concept of being among smarter people, heavy hitters, and achieving something isn't all it's cracked up to be. I was excited by the idea back then, but I'm glad I didn't do it. And I'm glad I'm where I'm at because it suits who I am. I don't know how those people do that, you know? I don't know how the people that matter a lot and are famous and are known, even in my local community, even in the city of Pittsburgh, I don't know how they do it. I don't want to wake up and be the manager of an apartment complex. I mean, there's a young girl up there now who's now managing this property where I've lived for the last 22 years. I wouldn't want to have her job. Why? Because I've, my neighbors have just trashed her to me numerous times. You know, and said, oh, she never gets anything done. She never listens to anybody. And, and, and I've bitched at her a couple times about some things. And she's, and then I've upset. I hope I, you know, I'm sorry if I'm coming off too bad. She said, oh, no, believe me, you're fine. You, you, you don't, you, you wouldn't believe the things I hear. So, <laughs> so I wouldn't want that job. You know, I'm not built to take on animosity from people like that. It would hurt me too much. It bothers me. So I know who I am. And I want to matter. We all want to matter. See, we all want to achieve things. We all want to, we want to make sure we're using our gifts and our skills to the best of our ability. We don't want to be untapped or underappreciated. We don't want to feel like we don't matter. We want to make a difference in the world. If we, you know, hopefully, right? That's the goal. But we also have to know our limitations and we have to know our disposition and our personalities. And are you the type of person who wants to live a life where every day you get up, tons of people are wondering, where are you? What are you doing? Come on. Where you matter, therefore, you don't have control. And you don't have the ability to say, no, thank you, and push the plate away. You can't do it. Or everything falls apart. Or if you do it, you've got to set something up for two months in advance before you can back out of something. You've got to really, you know, you, don't, you can't just jump. Now, I haven't been able to jump in years because of a divorce and child support and other things. So I've been stuck in a way too. Uh, I haven't exactly had freedom my whole life at all. When you have children, that really takes away a lot of your freedom. So I certainly didn't have this life of where I just did whatever I wanted at all. But my point is, it would have been even less so if I had actually taken on a really important, quote unquote, worldly important, meaningful thing. And finally, I'll leave you with this as I'm getting up to 54 minutes here. Because I think this is an important topic. And certainly it was a lot about me, but I hopefully anyone listening, you can relate to this, that this is registering with you <clears throat> on various and various levels. <clears throat> the, but the, <clears throat> the final note, <clears throat> and it's an important thing is, do you even believe in what the world is trying to achieve, really? Why join a group, an outfit <clears throat> that's up and at it and trying to work on the world every day when you know that all those jobs are like, most of them anyway, 
our systems, our groups, our organizations with rules, with principles. And personally, I've always been a loner. Personally, I've always been more the artist. Personally, I've always been an isolationist. I love people. I love interacting with people. I'm not someone who hates people. I, I disagree with them a lot, and they upset me. Um, but I don't, I don't want to work in a system made by people and be controlled in that sense because I don't really agree with their systems. I didn't agree with my education you know, growing up the school system. Um, if you look at marriages... If it's a love, it's great. But when it becomes the institution of marriage, when you see the way like the family in the stairway, staircase, stair hall, <laughs> the way they act in the house and the parties and the image you have to have, you know, the presence of a father. You see people on Twitter, loving father of three, loving children, father, God, love. You see the way that people describe themselves. It gives, I cringe, I cringe. Uh, it's not because I don't value being a father or love my children, not at all. It's because I don't like when that's the front you have to put on. And in so many things we do as people, once you join the team, you have to play by rules and you have to put on the uniform and you have to put up a front and it becomes who you are. And I've railed against that since I was a little boy. I don't want to be, I skip school a lot. I take my leave and now still on vacation every chance I get. Uh, I, I mean, in my current job, I take my vacation or whatever I can. I, I use, it's important to me not to just be a conformist. I am a non-conformist. It is a huge part of my identity. identity. And it's very hard uh, and almost impossible to be an important player in this world that makes a big difference to a lot of people and be a nonconformist because look at politicians. I mean, most of them have to conform. It's very difficult. You really have to carve a niche out for yourself or be very rich like Elon Musk <laughs> uh, to be a nonconformist and to do your own thing and still be a big shot. It's, it's, it's very much the exception, not the rule. So, if you want, and the people that are like that are artists, okay. But the number of people that make it in the arts and actually make a living and are successful doing something creative, it's very small, comparatively speaking, to the people trying to do it. So that's what I always wanted to be, should have been, would have been happiest as an artist, making a good living as a nonconformist, off on my own, working from time to time, making money, enough money to get by when I create, whatever whether it's as a singer, a band, an actor, whatever, film director, that's where I belonged so that I'd be with people. But they would have intellectually probably frustrated the hell out of me. Like I said, artist people aren't really logical. And I would have, we'd have been at cross purposes speaking. And I would have had a baby actors or work with people that were driving me nuts because they weren't thinking intellectually enough. You know, they were off in their artistic crazy world. So it would have been very frustrating as well. And I was quite frustrated in the music world when I had a band that was succeeding to a certain degree in the local city. I did not really jive with most musicians that I was talking with for the very reason, like I said, the intellectual, logical. They just were at cross purpose. We were at cross purposes. So it's really, really hard to set, to want to march to your own beat, to be a nonconformist, and to take part in anything that's really meaningful in this world. And so at the end of the day, that's another reason not to do it and to do your own thing. When you realize who you are, if you are, in fact, a nonconformist and you know that, and if you are, in fact, sensitive to other people and you know that, if you don't want to be made a target and you don't want to wake up every day where the day is made for you and you're not in control, then you can't really, you can't really be that important in the world. You can't really have a job that's that important. You have to settle for something that's less maybe gigantically important than maybe you feel you deserve. It's the only way to be happy. It's the only way for your personality and your being and who you are, your persona, to find a good mesh with your lifestyle and your, li your living. And that's where I'm at. And so I think at the end of the day, I've come to peace with where I'm at. And I think you should do the same and think about these things I'm talking about. They're important. Maybe you are a go-getter. Maybe you are a conformist. Maybe you're happy to be following the rules. Maybe you want to be important. Maybe you want to chase money that much. You know, you, you can be different in any way that you're different. And you can be the same as me. And either way, the important thing is to realize 
that if you're going to be a big shot, there's a lot that comes with that. There are a lot of costs that come with that, and you better be ready to deal with them, and you better be welcoming them, or you won't be happy. You won't be happy. All right, wrapping it up here at a whole hour. Boy, this was a long one. I love you. Yabba da boop